Thank you. Well, we've had a wonderful time uh, here so far, meeting several of these extraordinarily bright young people. And I'm particularly excited uh, this afternoon because we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, social entrepreneurship. And uh, that happens to be a topic uh, of, of great interest to me. Um, you know, medicine has always been something that has fascinated me uh, throughout my life. And, you know, as a youngster, I loved going to the doctor's office. And I guess that made me a little strange right there. <laughs> and uh, loved going to the hospital. That was even better because uh, we were on medical assistance and we'd have to wait to one of the interns or residents could see us, and I would entertain myself by listening to the PA system, Dr. Jones to the ER, Dr. Johnson to the <laughs> clinic. And I'd be saying, one day they'll be saying, Dr. Carson, Dr. Carson, but of course we have beepers nowadays. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but still, you know, those, those dreams and those kind of things that really pushed me sometimes when, uh, when life became difficult. And, uh, you know, sometimes, um, you know, we do experience failure, though, in our lives, as particularly uh, physicians, surgeons intervening in, in people's lives and doing the very best that we can possibly do. And it, it doesn't always work out. You know, I am reminded of the, the famous neurosurgeon Walter Dandy uh, from Johns Hopkins. The first... 13 posterior fossa operations that he did died. Can you imagine how discouraged he must have been? And I can't even imagine what he said to the 14th patient when they said how the other 13 did, you know? He probably said no one's complaining, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, you, you just have to have the right attitude about failure uh, when it occurs in your life, because it will occur in your life. And you have to be willing to take those risks and go out there and do things, you know. Uh, why do they call it cleaning formula 409? Because the first 408 didn't work, you know. It's a, it's a matter of being persistent and learning from things that makes all the difference in the world. You know, when I first started going outside of my operating room and my laboratory and my clinic and, and doing things socially, a lot of people criticized me, a lot of people in medicine. And they said, you know, you can't do that. And, you know, the fact of the matter is you'll never make it through the ranks of academia. You'll never become a tenured full professor if you continue to engage in all of these other activities. But I did become a tenured full professor in four disciplines and, uh, and have done many, many other things. But you can't necessarily listen to those people. You have to really listen to your heart when it tells you that there are problems and that those problems need to be solved. And, you know, when I think back to, you know, how my potential perhaps would not have been realized uh, except for a number of interventions in my life, it makes me even more determined to try to intervene in the lives of, of young people. You know, when I was in the fifth grade, for instance, you know, I was the worst student you've ever seen. Uh, nobody thought that I was smart. My nickname was Dummy. Uh, I was the one who created problems in the classroom. I was shooting paper wads. I was telling jokes. 
Um, and my favorite thing was getting my classmates kicked out of class. I love doing that, cause, uh, because then I wouldn't be the only one who didn't learn anything that day. So, um, you know, I was very good at it, I must say. I would study people, and I would figure out what made them very, very angry. And I would just irritate the living daylights out of them. But I would never push the last button until we were in class and the teacher was nearby. And then they would explode and the teacher would kick them out of class. And I would say, yeah, this is great. So, uh, so one, one day I was studying this girl because she was Miss Goody Two-Shoes. She's probably like some of you. You know, she was, uh, <laughs> you know, never got in any trouble, teacher's pet. Everything was absolutely picture perfect. I said, man, wouldn't it be great to get her kicked out of class? So I started studying her and figuring out what made her angry, and I figured it out. And I'll tell you, the steam was coming out of her ears. She was so mad, but I didn't push the last button. I waited till we were in class, and lo and behold, she sat right down in the seat in front of me. And I said, the Lord is good. <laughs> and uh, as the teacher approached, I pushed the last button, but she didn't explode. She just quietly and calmly turned around, and she said, you and me on the playground at recess. <laughs> so it didn't work out that well. Um, you know, I became a brain surgeon. She became a professional wrestler. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, I thought back. I thought back to, to, you know, what a waste my life was going to be, except for the fact of, you know, having a, a mother who believed in me and, and only with a third grade education made me read. And um, she made us read two books apiece from the Detroit Public Libraries and submit to her written book reports, which she couldn't read, but we didn't know that. She would put little check marks on it and highlight things. And, you know, from that experience, I began to know things that nobody else knew. And no book was safe in my grasp. And, you know, academically, you know, I just skyrocketed at that point. And that's what helped me to realize how much potential there really is lying out there that we're allowing to go to waste in our society. You know, we think about, in this country, the fact that we have such high dropout rates in some of our school systems. You know, my wife and I were in, in Hartford, Connecticut not long ago uh, because we have a scholarship program and we try to reward uh, students from the fourth grade right through high school who achieve at the highest academic levels. And this was the first year we were presenting scholarships in Hartford when the school officials told us that the high school dropout rate in Hartford is 71%. And in many of the large cities around this nation, the high school dropout rates are absolutely astronomical. And the question becomes, what can we do about it? What can each one of us do about it? Or is it our responsibility to do anything about it? Wouldn't it be just as comfortable to drive home in our BMW and put our feet up in our very nice home and look at our beautiful gardens and statues and enjoy wonderful vacations and scientific meetings 
and other things that make us feel good? Why do we need to worry about those other people out there who are not realizing their potential? Well, what we need to understand, I think, is that for each one of those young people that goes down that path of self-destruction, you know, that's a person that we have to be worried about. Somebody we have to protect our families from. Somebody we have to pay for in the penal system or the welfare system. One less productive tax-paying member of society who might discover the cure for AIDS or discover a new energy source. And that's why we can't afford to allow those people to fall through the cracks. And that's why it impacts directly on each one of us. And there is a particular segment in our society, in this country, and in many other countries, that is very much in danger, and that's the young black male. In America, they say the young black male is an endangered species. Why? Because there are more young black males in jail than there are in college. Because the homicide rates are astronomical in our large cities, the most likely cause of death. What do we do about that? Because anybody in the educational arena knows that young black males are good students. Kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade. And then something begins to happen. That peer pressure begins to kick in. Then they start reading in their American history book. And they want to know, what did my ancestors do? But they don't see any of their ancestors having contributed to the development of this country. And they say, well, maybe next year when I take world history. But the same thing happens. And they say, well, what did my ancestors do? And then they turn the TV on and they say, oh, there I am playing basketball, baseball, football, rapping in those baggy pants, acting a fool on some sitcom comedy and you begin to get a very distorted image of what success involves. And that image doesn't include being a particle physicist. It doesn't involve being the CEO of a corporation or the president of a university. And that's not what they see. That's not what they think. And you know, unfortunately, by the time they realize that they're not going to be the next Michael Jordan or the next rap singer, and they've neglected all of their academic studies. What's left? Up drives this big black BMW with tinted glass. Out steps this guy with jewels, furs, lots of women. Want to be like me? I can show you how to do all this stuff. And the next thing you know, you're looking at the 6 o'clock news, and you say, isn't that little Jimmy? being led away in handcuffs, trying to shield his face from the cameras, having committed some heinous crime. He was such a good boy. What happened? What happened indeed, it happens every single day across this nation to little Jimmy's. And it didn't have to happen. Because anybody could have taken that young boy by the hand when he was six years old and walked down the streets of Washington, D.C and given him a black history lesson that he would have never forgotten. They could have started by pointing to his shoes and saying it was Jan Motzliger, a black man who invented the automatic shoe lasting machine which revolutionized the shoe industry throughout the world. 
and he steps on that clean street and you tell him it's Charles Brooks, a black man who invented the street sweeper, those machines with the big brushes that clean the streets. And down that street comes one of those big refrigerated tractor trailer trucks and you tell him it was Frederick Jones, a black man who invented the refrigeration system for trucks later adopted for airplanes, boats, and trains. And it comes to a stop at the red light, and you tell him it was Garrett Morgan, a black man who invented the traffic signal. And you can also tell how he invented the gas mask, saved lots of lives during the war. And while you're talking about the war, Henrietta Bradbury, a black woman who invented the underwater cannon, made it possible to launch torpedoes from submarines. And you'll see a beautiful black woman walking down the street. A black man did not invent her, but you can, <laughs> you can use that opportunity to talk about Madam C.J. Walker, a black woman who invented cosmetic products for women of dark complexion was the first female of any nationality in this nation to become a millionaires on her own efforts. And you'll walk past the hospital and you'll talk about Charles Drew and his contributions to blood banking and the understanding of the function of blood plasma. And Daniel Hale Williams, the first successful open heart surgery in the world, had an operative mortality rate less than 1.5% better than many cardiothoracic surgeons today. And you look up at that surgical light, Thomas Edison, you didn't know he was black, did you? <laughs> well, he wasn't. But you can use that opportunity to talk about Louis Latimer, his right-hand man who came up with the filament that made the light bulb work for more than two or three days, who invented the electric lamp, who did pioneering work in incandescent and fluorescent lighting, who diagrammed the telephone for Alexander Graham Bell, was a tremendous inventor in his own right. Most people never heard of him. He walked past the railroad tracks. Andrew Beard, the automatic railroad car coupler, spurred on the Industrial Revolution. Elijah McCoy, the automatic lubrication system for locomotive engines. He had so many great inventions that when something new would come out, people would say, is that a McCoy? Is that the real McCoy? That's where the term came from. You got racist people like David Duke talking about the real McCoy, don't even know who they're paying homage to. And you know, and I'm just barely scratching the surface. So you can see that young man never had a reason to believe that his ancestry didn't play a very important role. And there's no reason for him to believe that he too cannot play an important role. More importantly, I can take that same walk down the street for virtually any nationality and point out tremendous contributions that were made by all those people. And that's how this country rose to the pinnacle faster than any nation before, because it's a child of every other nation. And as the child of every other nation should be concerned about every other nation. And that's where we all come in, because see, we're all part of the same family. And as a brain surgeon, I can tell you, when I do a craniotomy, I open that skull and I'm looking at that brain, I cannot tell what the nationality is. It is all the same. And that is really what makes you into a human being. That's what makes you into another person. And that's why we all need to make sure that we fully understand that and exercise everything within our ability and our sphere of influence to elevate those around us. Thank you very much.